Wayne Kramer is on the show today. This is a very um, special episode uh, for me because I, you know, sometimes with, with musicians, I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm talking to fucking Wayne Kramer. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh my God. I don't know how much you guys know about the MC5, but the MC5 were the shit, man. They were three albums of the shit. Pure fucking rock and roll at a at a moment in history that will never come again. Three records of, of beautiful chaos. I mean, without the MC5, you get no punk rock, you get no Iggy Pop, you get no, you know, balls to the walls, rip it open kind of rock and roll. Comes right out of Detroit, man. Late 60s, baby. Never going to be the same again. The world is never going to be the same. That was a turning point, And these guys were at the center of the hurricane, the eye of the storm. Uh, I, I didn't even know what to do with Wayne Kramer. I, I, you know, I had this opportunity to interview him and yeah, I started listening to the, the MC five records. You can listen to all of it, man. There's only a few records, maybe one bootleg. There's only a few records. And then it was over. It was fucking over. And lives went awry. Lives went rogue, man. Wayne Kramer has had at least three lives. And, and I'm, I'm thinking he might have a cat's disposition. So I'm listening to the MC five. And, uh, yeah, when Wayne Kramer comes up, you know, he drives up and, you know, Wayne Kramer's in his sixties now and I'm listening to kick out the jams loud, like it's supposed to be listened to. And, uh, I walk out, I see him pull up, I walk out into the driveway and you can hear the music pouring out into the street, the fucking first tune. And I'm walking up the driveway with Wayne and I'm like, do you hear that, man? Do you hear that? He's like, yeah. I'm like, you know what that is? He's like, I don't know. What? Uh, I don't know if I do. I'm like, listen to it. Do you know what that is? Uh, no, not not right off. And 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 we walk in. I'm like, it's you, man. It's you. He's like, oh, it is me. And then I thought, like, it's interesting. The sort of you know, we wait. We put on, you know, entertainers or people that have made an impact on our lives through their art. It's like you think they live in that. You know, it's like how could how could you know you be Wayne Kramer from the MC5 and not wake up every day. You know, thinking about like fucking the MC5, man. Well, in a few minutes, you'll you'll <laughs> you'll know exactly why. Uh, you know, no matter what the fucking amazing, beautiful, uh, fiery alchemy that manifested the music of the MC5, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then, man. And you know, I'm not sure you'd want to live in it. You know what I'm saying? This this is a great one, folks. This is a great one. And if you don't know the MC5, go get all three records. Just go and listen to them in order and enjoy some fucking rock and roll. All right, let's talk to Wayne Kramer. I had um, I had Iggy in here, sitting right there. Do you remember him when he was that young? And younger. <laughs> yeah. We, we go way, way, way back. Do you still friends? Very close. He was uh, he was stunning to me. I, I had no idea what to expect, and he's incredibly lucid, and he remembers everything, and he's smart. Very it's, always it's, has been. Yeah, yeah. From from back in the day, and he and he has a unique uh, voice. You know, he, oh yeah. He, his his speech is metaphorical and uh-huh. poetic. Uh-huh. And it's, yeah. I think that he has a very strong distinction between Jim and Iggy. Yeah. That you know, when he's on stage, that's that's he's a performer. He's an entertainer. Yes. When he's off stage, he's an intellectual. 
He is. He is. That's right. It's fascinating. Yeah. Do you ever go back to Detroit? Pretty regularly. Do you yeah. still have family there? Not much family, but, you know, many great friends. And, of course, Detroit was the home of some of my greatest accomplishments and my most miserable failures. <laughs> uh-huh. But what was it like when you were a kid? I mean, how did you grow up there? Because, like, you know, you go, it's one of these, I'm sort of obsessed with the city now, and I'm reading this memoir by this guy that, you know, it's it's a city that just, it didn't just collapse a little bit. It collapsed completely. It got it got sucked into a black hole. It's it's the American Pompeii. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, without with a yeah an economic uh, uh, volcano. It, it's Katrina level destruction. When I grew up, I was born there in 1948. Yeah, I'm a I'm a archetypal baby boomer. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I grew up in a in a boom town where everything was possible. And what your what, what like what business was the family in? Uh, I was raised by a single mother who was a beautician. Uh huh. And our we lived in a, a two rooms in the back of the beauty shop. Oh, really? On Michigan Avenue. <laughs> yeah. And she went out in the day and did the ladies' hair, and, uh-huh. and she worked at night in the clubs as a barmaid. Oh, really? And bartender, and uh, and that's how I grew up. And and it was Converse sneaker wearing, all American, Sandlot baseball, ride your bike anywhere you want. Yeah. Walk the streets at night. And your dad boys, was Boys your, Club of America. Yeah, you your know. dad wasn't around. Nah, he was an alcoholic and. He got fired. He got fired from the job of father. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you ever track him down? I did. Yeah. How was that experience? How old were you? About forty. You waited a little while. <laughs> I was. I was pretty angry. <laughs> and my therapist tells me I was brokenhearted. Yeah, I feel. I think I feel that too, and I know mine. <laughs> I saw mine last weekend. <laughs> you try to love someone, they can't love you back. It breaks your heart. It, that's true, man. It's really that simple, isn't it? And sometimes they think they're loving you, and they're not. Yeah. yeah. So what was it? I mean, what did it take to go see him? Uh, well, I called him on the phone. You looked him up. My sister found him. I have a younger sister, and yeah. she was more diligent about it. She found him. So I called him up and uh, I said, is, is this Stanley? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, this is Wayne. I think uh, you're my father. Said, yeah, I am. And he was a very stoic fellow. Uh-huh. Um, he was uh, diagnosed already with uh, terminal cancer. So he was dying. Dying, didn't complain. Uh Rolled with it, and it, you know it was very awkward. <laughs> needless did you, to did, say, did you go see him, or you just did the phone call? Well, I called him. Uh, we talked on the phone four or five times over the next year, mm-hmm. and then he finally got sick, and I thought I better go see him. And damned if he didn't die on the way out there. No kidding. Yeah, I saw him in his <laughs> casket. Abandoned you again, <laughs> <laughs> fucker. <laughs> One last time. And laying in his box, he had a full head of hair. Really God pissed me off. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're in the back of the beauty shop. When did it start to get what what was the what was the uh the moment where you know rock and roll uh corrupted and enlightened your brain there behind the beauty shop? There was a uh Detroit was famous for its um Coney Islands. You know, it's a hot dog uh-huh. with uh, chili uh-huh. and uh, onions. Yeah. 
a lot of Greek people in, in Detroit. I'm Greek. And the Greeks had the Coney Island they, racket. Yeah, they had the racket. racket. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of was there a lot of Canadians too yes. at that time? Yes, yes. Absolutely. My grandparents were Canadian. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh on the way home from the Boys Club of Detroit, mm-hmm. um, where I would go and you know, being a latchkey kid and yeah. left to my own devices, uh there was a uh, Coney Island, and they had a Seaberg jukebox, and I'd go in there and get a hot dog on the <laughs> yeah. way home and listen to this new music, rock yeah. and roll. And I would hear things like Dwayne Eddy's Rebel Rouse right. with this huge yeah. speaker, and, and Chuck Berry was yeah. a big hit then, and yeah. Elvis was a big hit. Yeah. And uh, the music started to, it spoke to me in a secret code. And then at the same time, my mother was dating a fellow from the South who played the guitar. Oh, yeah? He would come over and sing to her. Mm-hmm. And I could see the reaction. This was engendering. Worked, huh? <laughs> and I said, I want some of that. <laughs> yeah, that, that guy's got to figure it out. <laughs> so, so I've been doing an informal poll of, amongst musicians, and I find a great many of us were raised by single mothers. Is that true? Tom Morello. Yeah. John Coltrane. Yep. Uh, and many, many more. Uh, I think there's something happens without a dad in the picture where we just needed more mm-hmm. and music. I think that's in general. Yeah. You know, like I, I think, like yeah, because I know there are a lot. I know the cats that don't have whose dads were absent that made them almost overcompensate. Yeah, you know, like push harder. You know, there's, there's something wrong with a, a, a guy that works really hard to put himself in front of. 1,500 people and demand that they show you affection. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, if you're me, defy that affection. <laughs> you, you know, literally fight the affection. You like me? You still like me? How about after this one? Huh? I want this room full of people. Keep them away from me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they love me. I hate them. <laughs> you had a little of that, huh? Well, it, it, it also, like, when, how, how far behind the MC5 was... Um, or or before the MC5 was Mitch Ryder in that? They were our contemporaries. They were? Yeah. Um, uh, they were the band to beat. Oh, really? Mitch Ryder. Yeah, they were the best white rock band in Detroit. And, and they were terrific. They and, were spectacular. But you guys, I mean, it, it feels to me that Mitch Ryder coming more out of that popular music realm, that at some point, you know, whether it was the 60s or, or, or the momentum that was going on at the time— you guys wanted to blow it apart, right? Well, yeah, we did. Uh, you know, we were all influenced by the music we were exposed to on, on the radio and, and the great history, rich, deep history of, of uh, music in Detroit. Yeah. It's a very deep uh, well of the history of jazz and, and uh, musicianship in general in Detroit. There was a few high schools that had uh, spectacular music programs. Did you go to one of them? I did not. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, by the time the MC5 emerged, we had been exposed to the free jazz movement. I, I started John Sinclair, my dear friend and and mentor, and is and, he still around? Oh yeah. That, now th- that's an interesting story. He lives so that, in Amsterdam, of okay. course, as uh, because he had to because he <laughs> because he is the king of marijuana, and okay. where else would one live? He and he's he has his own brand of marijuana seeds. So that's where he's ended up. Is yep. a, yeah, he's uh, yeah. He, he's he's what he was born to be, which is a beatnik poet. Uh huh. And he and he has a band. He has he has a band that exists in a million forms all over the world called the Blues Scholars. Uh huh. 
And they all play basic blues forms, and he does his poetry over the blues. Okay. He calls it investigative poetry. Well, that's exciting. The stories of the blues. I, I like that, you know, that there there is part of the 60s sort of creative spirit that, that you know, has become kind of trivialized over time and, and, and dismissed and, and mocked. But there is, there, if there is heart in it, uh, you know, I think it, it exists in its own place, and the people that appreciate it get it, and the people that don't, fuck them. Yeah. Yeah. So what but was Sinclair always a good force in your life? Yes. Always. So when did it when when you were just hanging out and listening to music, how did you start playing music? I mean, who were you playing with and what happened? Oh, I started in uh well, you know, I I wanted to learn the guitar. Yeah. And uh so my mother got me guitar lessons. I think I think we paid $2.50. Yeah, and what was that first guitar? It was a K. Was that it right there? As a matter of fact, that is it. How that did, is it. How did you get my guitar? It wasn't an F hole one. It was like that one. Man, is that wild or what? It, uh, actually, that one looks a little better than mine. <laughs> mine was so nasty. I, I couldn't even. I couldn't hold. I couldn't play like an a F bow and arrow. Like you could, <laughs> couldn't play. I couldn't hold two strings down at the same time. Inch between the strings and the neck. Uh, and I kept studying, uh-huh. and I got more and more obsessed with music. And I would come home from school and just play the guitar till mm-hmm. it was time to go to bed. Uh, so at a certain point, I decided I wanted to be in a band, mm-hmm. uh, and I started a- answering ads for lead guitar player wanted mm-hmm. working because there was all kinds of work in Detroit in those yeah. days. Auto yeah. factories went twenty four seven. A lot of clubs, a lot of bands. Um, but I found that I was a little younger than most of the other guys that were going on the auditions, and they could all play just a little better than I could. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like you had to be able to play Hideaway. Right, right, right. And, yeah, uh, was that Freddie King? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they could always they could play that break in the middle a little better than I could. Uh, you know? So I finally decided to start my own band yeah. and start asking around at school, and, and that's the birth of the MC5. And who was the first one in? Uh, well... Uh, I, I it, it kind of all happened at once. Fred Smith was kind of in a rival band, yeah. and then we decided to join forces. Well, did you go see his band? We would play on the same parties. And play, oh, really? You, so you had a band? Basements. Oh, yeah, I had a band. What was that called? That, they were called the Bounty Hunters. Yeah, and what was your what was your big what was your closing number, man? We did all instrumentals of the era: Ventures, um, Johnny and the Hurricane. And you were playing lead on those? Yeah. That was your thing. That was my thing, yeah. And then you go see Fred Sonic Smith's band, and you're like, that motherfucker's got some chops. Well, I heard, <laughs> I didn't know that he, he actually, he didn't in the beginning. Uh-huh. I, I heard at school that the, he, this kid, Fred Smith, played bongos. Yeah. And I figured a band could use a bongo player. <laughs> sure, back then. So he can... came over, and then I found out his dad was from the South, and they had a guitar at home. Uh-huh. And I said, I'll show you. It's easy. Oh, and really? I, so one day, uh, for the one whole summer, I would go over to his house every day, and I'd show him the rhythm parts, and and I'd play the melodies. And yeah. That's how we started. And so all the other guys kind of came around from school? From school, yeah, in the neighborhood. The, the original crew. Who was who was the original crew? Well, originally it was uh, me, Fred and I, uh, a, a different rhythm section, a, a kid named Bob Gasper, a yeah. bass player named Pat Burroughs. Yeah. And, uh, and in the beginning, Rob Tyner was going to be our manager. Yeah, that didn't work what out. What was his name before Rob Tyner? Uh, Bob Deminer. Okay, Bob Deminer. Bob Deminer was going to be the manager. 
Then uh, the the only manager that's also you know that has the personality of a front man. Yes, right. I think I think he uh, he, he kind of looked down at rock. You know, he was listening to jazz and high minded. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then the Rolling Stones kind of turned him out. Oh, know? really? Yeah. So then he decided he wanted to be so in the band. You, and, so you're like, what? You're how old? 16, 17? Yeah. He wanted to be your 15, manager. 15. 14, and yeah. he was. And Tyner's already like, you know, you guys are doing this this easy music. So was his angle sort of like there's no nuance to rock and roll. There's no, uh, you know, it's it's for the it's for the rabble. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think he just thought that uh, he was just a snob about it. You know. Well, it's pretty impressive that a kid that age is like you know jazz head to begin with, isn't yeah. it? And he's the guy that got you guys into jazz, or what? Um, well, he um, would go downtown to the artist workshop and watch these uh, beatnik poetry things with live music. And uh, that's where he met Sinclair. So he said, man, you guys got to come down and see these beatniks, man. Yeah. And, and we did. And then we met John. And, and of course, the MC5 was insane. Yeah. And completely unmanageable. Right. And Why? Like, in what way? Well, we, because we were just defiant. And, you know, anytime there was some, a set goal, we would be sure to blow it. Uh-huh. As a group. Yeah. Like, but you were jamming. But we rocked, yeah. Yeah, and you were playing your own songs. Not yet. We're uh-huh. we're still still figuring out how to do what we so, did. But but sound wise, I mean, what because like you know, I listened to I listened to the newest record, the the Lexington record, which is a jazz record for all intents and purposes. Yes, yes. And and, and the thing right away that I, I found was, was spectacular was you know you got you got this fucking dynamic horn section right that you've worked with before and, and it, you know it's fairly classically structured jazz it's a little avant-garde in places but it, it's fucking straight up i mean if you listen to jazz it's all going to fall into place there's nothing new on the record well no it's not it's not it's not like slow jazz it's not groove jazz it's fucking yeah. hardcore yeah. i mean it's yeah. like you know we're going out there yeah, yeah. so they're going out there here the horns going out there you got good bass support and then there's fucking Wayne Kramer tone here comes here comes a fucking dirty guitar sound. I'm like, oh yeah. No matter what, he can make sure he stands out in this one. It's not be any... Well, you know that music, the music of Albert Eiler and and Cecil Taylor and yeah. John Coltrane and Sun Ra, spoke to me as the direction of the future. You mm-hmm. know, if I could play my best Chuck Berry solo as fast as I can, what do I go next? Yeah. And the bebop guys were asking themselves the same question. That's right. why we connected. We all lived in the same neighborhoods. We all had the same girlfriends. We all loved to smoke weed. We all hung out. We all were trying to move the music forward. You were hanging out with the bebop guys? Yeah. All right, so, okay, so you guys are defiant in terms of, of uh, at least cutting against the grain. When did you blow it out? I mean, when, when you guys started playing and you got all these influences, you got Sun Ra and you got Cecil uh, Cecil Taylor, yeah. and all this stuff's coming into your head. Chuck Berry, James Brown. Right, well, yeah, yeah I mean, you can hear it. You know, I mean, you can certainly hear it on Kick Out. You can hear it all the way through, really. It gets a little cleaner, but that first live record that I had on when you came in. Now, yeah. when I stand out in the driveway and you pull up and I'm going, go, can you hear that? And you had to sort of bend your ear to hear it. What did it do? What does that do when you hear that? When you hear you singing on, on Ramblin' Rose in the first cut of that fucking Kick Out the Jams record, and you're standing in my driveway, where does your head go? I, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's just like, uh, I guess a synapse fires somewhere. Do you have a distance from it? Can you go back to that show? Do you know? Do you, do you, can, you, can you feel what was going on then? Now? Well, of course, that's the magic of making records is 
you can capture that moment of original joy. Yeah. In real life, you can't, you know. Yeah. Joy passes you, you try to grab a kiss as it goes by because that's all you can get. But in a re- if you if you if you're lucky when you're making records, you can you can grab it. Well, that record was on fire, man. I mean, like, you know, I mean, you're standing there listening to Tyner, right? Spew that stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, we're, we got a purpose, man. Railing at that audience. <laughs> yes. Ray, imploring them. <laughs> to what? Revolution. To take action. Take action. Was it clear what action needed to be taken? I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, I think what Tyner was railing at, what all of us last night. Yeah. I participated in a panel discussion with Pussy Riot, mm-hmm. with Nadia and Masha and uh, the great Shepherd Ferry mm-hmm. about arts, arts and corrections, prison, prison reform, and culture and the importance of art in mm-hmm. general. And, and I, I'm, I'm, it, I believe, I have come to believe that art is the only defense we have against the industrial nature of the state on our bodies state power and and corporate power it's the only portal to freedom it and yes and it's a powerful one um it's not the most powerful but it's the most powerful one we have and uh and uh because art in a sense as an individual even can free your spirit yes so on that basic level, I think that when you have a conversation about like, you know, art can, you know, break down walls or break down or art or, or the power of art against uh, something so massive is in, 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 and I just realized it just now, as I said it, is that, you know, I think the misconception is, is that, you know, art as a movement necessarily uh, is going to break down walls, but art as something that can free the individual no matter where they are. Is an important thing. This is uh, this is my experience working in the prisons today. Mm-hmm. Um, when we can get guitars in in prisoners' hands and task them with telling their story in a song, the barriers between prisoners come down. Mm-hmm. The gang differences vanish. Race racial dis- differences vanish. Class differences vanish because now it's all music. Yeah. Now we're talking about how does that, how do you play that C chord? Right. Yeah. How does that work? Okay. So, and then you're trying to write your tune. I mean, that's the, the goal of jail guitar doors is to use music as a tool for abilitation uh, uh, that one can express themselves non-confrontationally. Right. <laughs> you know, art is anger management. <laughs> that, that's true. I, and, and I, and I, I wish quite honestly that I played more guitar than I do. I'm not a professional guitar, but I enjoy playing guitar, but I need to play more. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Jail Guitar Doors is the name of of the... of the um, what, what what would you call it? It it's is a, a, it's a nonprofit. It's an independent initiative, and that and you founded that. Me and and Billy Bragg. Uh huh. I had him in here too. He was in here. Uh, sweet guy. Very good. Big heart. That guy. I, I love him more than I can express. You know, when I went down, this this new new music emerged. They called it punk rock. When you went down. When I went to prison. Yeah, we got to get there. Can we get through the good times? Can, can we? Can, I'll make note of that. So went, when Wayne went down, punk. And now let's get back to the fun. We're just starting to have fun. So here you guys are. You just fucking balls of the wall, and like you know, you 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 actually you created a tone. 
I mean, if you listen to you listen to um, to kick out the jams, especially. I mean, you're you're already outdoing Mitch Ryder in terms of of the of the 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 the, the momentum of the music, mm-hmm. and I imagine you picked up some of that drive from whatever was going on in Detroit at the time yeah, between yeah. the two of you. Sure, sure. But but the 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 pounding fucking tone and the you know blowing out the amps on that shit, and you get that crunch going. I mean, you guys, I think invented that. I, I tried, <laughs> yeah, because like you know, without it, you get no Iggy. You right. get no, you know, you get no Johnny Thunders. Mm-hmm, you, you know, mm-hmm. you get no. There, there's, there's a whole legacy that you, you would call punk, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that came after you. So what was the, what was the impetus there? You guys are playing Chuck Berry songs, but you're like, fuck it. Yeah. You know, turn it up. Well, I, I found that if I mess with the amp, the, the, the higher I ran it. Uh, now today I know, you know. Uh, it's called overtones. Yeah. That they're harmonic overtones of a, a tube. Yeah, a tube trying very hard yes. <laughs> to manage what you wanted to do. Going, a tube being asked to do way more than it was designed to do. Right. Uh, that all of a sudden I would hear things in a, a major chord like these overtones. They were, it would sound like a whole symphony. Mm-hmm. This is fucking great. Listen to this. <laughs> and then I'd go to recording sessions and I'd set my amp that way and the engineers would say, turn that down. It's all distorted. Started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ain't it great? <laughs> yeah. No, man. You want it to go chink, chink like a Motown, man. Yeah. That's a guitar tone. Yeah. You, that's, that's you punks. Jeez, that's yeah. awful. Oh, yeah. Jesus. You're going to blow up my gear. And uh, So you went through that. And that's yeah. one of the things you were defiant against. Well, I, you know, youth wants to find its own voice. Every generation, you know, has to reject orthodoxy. So in 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 retrospect, like you know, now the, you know that you you know you're sort of you, you're 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 sober, you're level, you have some peace of mind. You look back at your life, and you're doing you know the 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 jail guitar doors, and 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 really sort of contextualizing art and the power of art. But at the time, uh, during you know the, when you you meet John Sinclair and the MC Five is coming around, the the social climate. You know, with, with race and and rebellion on behalf of the youth, and and you know, th- this is probably the, the Vietnam War still happening, big time. Sixty eight, yeah. So you're, you're, you're seeing friends go down. Yep. Uh, you know, your body bags are coming back. Yep. Yep. So you know what what was the convergence? Uh, we, we were communists. <laughs> so what, what? When did that start to happen? You guys are a bunch of kids that are just like fuck you, turn it up, and then all of a sudden you what you, you're. You, you have three wives or what's going on? Yeah. Well, you know, the communal thing really was uh, pragmatism. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't get the band together to show up at rehearsal. So I said, fuck this. I'm going to move them all in together. We're all going <laughs> to live in one place yeah. so we can say at three o'clock, we're going to rehearse. <laughs> that was it? That, that was, was it. it. So that was the ulterior motive. The ulterior to, motive uh, was, to the, to the... it was just too, I, I just, it just stressed me out, man, to get these guys to show up to rehearse, you know? So, <laughs> so I moved everybody in together right. and, uh, and Sinclair took over the reins as the manager. Right. We, we tried some show business type managers, and of course, that didn't work. Fuck them, right? We didn't respect them. You right. Know? We respected John. And uh, had he had any experience managing? No. And what what was his fundamental experience as uh, a poet? As a poet, uh-huh. uh, you know, he had he'd been the. Spent six months in the Detroit House of Corrections for his first marijuana conviction, um, and he had a he was a, a walking 
uh, uh, compendium of popular culture and jazz. So rock band, rock and roll was a new thing for him then. We 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 changed his mind. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the White Rockers either. Uh-huh. But um, when he heard the MC Five, he thought, uh, "Well, maybe maybe something something's going on here that I, I I should check out." So then, how what was the 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 sort of you know cyclone of social relevance that you guys got caught up in? Who who brought you there? What was the White Panther movement? Well, you know, th- that time the late '60s was a polarizing time to be a young person in America. And yeah. it's, I think it's hard for our listeners to grab it unless they were there um, because the divisions were cataclysmic and they were right down the dinner table. Right. You know, right. dad was all for the war because the World War II guys were all for the right. and, America. And they believed the government. Yeah, and they, yeah. Be- they believed the hype. Right. And we weren't buying it. You yeah. know, my attitude was when the Viet Cong are coming through the Windsor Tunnel, I'm there. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. otherwise, go fuck yourself. <laughs> right. You know? Right. This is about shell oil. Right. Or something. I don't right. know, this Cold War ideological thing about the falling dominoes or something. Yeah. Where is Vietnam? Right, you know? right, right. How is it a threat to us? Yeah, we 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 couldn't justify it. We felt it was an undeclared, illegal war, mm-hmm. immoral war. We felt uh, people of color in this country were treated wrong, mm-hmm. unfair, unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought the drug ro- drug laws were archaic and uh, bar- you know barbaric, mm-hmm. <laughs> medieval. Yeah, uh, and uh, and. When we, one of our guys was in the county jail and he found a copy of the Black Panther newspaper. Yeah, which guy? Uh, Pun Plamondon. Yeah. Pun, Pun became our minister of defense. In the, in the White, White Panther Party. Okay. One of your guys. In the newspaper, Huey Newton said there needed to be a white group doing parallel work to the Black Panther Party. And, you know, we liked the way they looked, you know, <laughs> the berets and the sunglasses and the black leather. And yeah. I said, that's a good look. I liked that. <laughs> so we said, that's us. And, we, and we got guns and, you know, I mean, we were kind of, they talked about us like we, they called us psychedelic clowns, you know. The Black Panthers did? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but we, you know, we developed a relationship with them and, and we were we were comrades. With and, Huey? Not with Huey, but with uh, Sam Napier and... Uh-huh. and uh, uh, Bobby Seale and oh really? So you guys yeah. would go? You would hang out and go yeah, to meetings yeah. and talk about strategy. Well, some more than others, you yeah, know, because because yeah. at the bottom line was we really weren't Marxist Leninists. We were rock and rollers, right? And, you know, pun and those guys would have community meetings and uh, yeah, yeah. talk about uh, Marxist theory and uh-huh. uh, ideological purity yeah. and uh, argue the fine points of right. the, the revolution. And you were listening to Sun Ra records, yeah, and chasing girls, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But your but your heart was in the right place, and it, yeah, and it all fit together. Right, it all it, it all made a whole, and and of course we made some we made a terrible mistake mm. uh, in embracing the concept of violence as a strategy, as a means to to to, to positive get, change. Right, yeah, and and uh, but how did you get involved? What, what was your involvement in that? I mean, did you? We got armed. Yeah, but and, I mean, did you use your arms? Well. You, and there's if you're going to get yourself in trouble, don't say it. But it, I didn't set any bombs. Right. Some someone blew up the CIA office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't set the bomb. I get it. I don't know who set the bomb. I get it. Uh, but we we embraced 
this idea yeah, of, right. of uh, radical militant right. uh, action. R- revolution. Uh, and it was a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. It, it was just, in, in hindsight, of course, it was, uh, I, I wonder why, you know, did I, did I see too many war movies on TV or cops shoot them ups, you know, pow, yeah. oh, they wing right. me. Well, that's television. That's the movies. But also, you know? you, but you were caught up in a very real, like, you know, cataclysmic social change. Yeah. That, you know, I yeah. can't even, and I think you're right in saying that the people who live now or kids who live now or anybody that didn't really live through it or wasn't in, in the eye of the storm and that, you can't really imagine, like, it was a real sh- cultural shift and and how people saw the government, how they saw themselves, how they saw music, how they saw you know you, you know what the country actually represented, and yeah. I can't imagine you know as a kid under twenty or you know in your early twenties how you know it, just to have that much lack of foundation and that much you know radical sort of freedom and purpose with all that shit coming in. I mean, it might not have just been TV. It could have just been like fuck yeah. Well, it, it was a way to express our frustration. With the with the what we felt was a slow pace of change. So when we, did, we want shit to change, and we wanted to change now. So after after kick out the jams, you know, you did the two studio records, but you know when when did shit go bad? Well, um, the MC5's fundamental anarchy, mm-hmm. internal anarchy, um, didn't help. Uh, Sinclair was ultimately sentenced to nine and a half to 10 years for possession of two joints. Fuck. He was the glue that held us together. Right. When John went to prison, we were kind of left back on our crazy asses by ourselves. Uh And it wasn't too long after that that the band, uh, well, let me say, that I um, discovered that, uh, you know, this is really hard trying to sustain the level of... uh, uh, excitement that the band originally came out of the box with, yeah, and uh, with no business help, uh, no real help inside the band itself, um, and ultimately the band uh, broke up. But like, how much? Like, uh, how much did you know? Because I know at the time, you know, dope was around. I mean, how much did drugs play a part in the the un- you know the under the undermining yeah, of the band? I I, I I don't think that the drugs were really an issue. In the breakup, I think yeah. I think the political climate, you know, the music business yeah. turned on the MC5. And in in what? So okay, so let's let's just track you that. Know, record we'll, companies, all right? So the first distributors, the first album was a mind blower, right? Yeah. So everyone's like, "Holy fuck!" Yeah. So then they're like, "Well, how do we wrangle these kids?" When the, when the first album came out, uh, everyone said, "Oh, this is the, this is the archetypal American. This is where the real deal," because. The thing that set the MC5 apart from our peers, our contemporaries, was we spoke directly to our people, mm-hmm. those kids in the audience. We talked to them about the things they cared about. Right. It wasn't, yeah, man, I've really studied Elmore James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. you're up against the draft. Yeah. So am I. Let's go. Power to the people. Right, you know, right. Fuck these motherfuckers. You know, <laughs> this shit's wrong. <laughs> Punk rock. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and you know when kids in the audience threw that fist up in the air at our concerts or that V yeah. sign, yeah, that was a connection that the MC Five had with their audience. So yeah. this is a powerful thing, right? Uh, when the business interests saw this was going to get complicated, <laughs> yeah, complicated in what way? Well, the record got banned. 
because because a motherfucker kick, and kick out the jams motherfucker yeah so kids, over bullshit got kid, banned over bullshit kid, kids were getting arrested for selling an obscene record really it's i know it's hard to imagine and this is like well this is right at the same time lenny bruce is fighting for that shit yep same thing. Yeah. And Electra said, we're with you. Mm-hmm. We back you on this. We'll, we'll defend your right to say whatever you want to say. Yeah. And then when they found out that they were going to lose money, they, like, they changed in, their yeah, mind. Yeah. We can't back you. <laughs> yeah. We can't defend what you say. In fact, we're firing you. <laughs> Go be somebody else's problem. <laughs> but then you do an album on what, Atlantic? Which... We did two albums for Atlantic. But by that time, uh, we, we didn't really have anyone... To to uh, to carry the water for us at the company and and uh, you know they had they had new bands who were way less trouble. I mean they yeah. had this new band called the Almond Brothers. Yeah, who are they? Who, How'd they do? They want they wanted to boogie. Yeah, the MC Five <laughs> wanted, wanted, wanted something else. Destroy the established order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the, being good capitalists, they took the path of least resistance. They took the know? boogie path. Yes, <laughs> take the boogie. All worked path. out great for all of them. I'm, but those records are great records. Back in the USA and High Time are great records. They just tempered you. They neutered you. Uh, High Time, in particular, I, I'm I'm proud of. I think it was we had finally learned how to work in a studio, and mm-hmm. and uh, we were writing pretty good material, and it was imaginative and uh-huh. forward thinking. So. Yeah. And then so, you broke so, up. Yeah, I mean that's when, for, and that's when the drugs really entered the picture because, you know, talent. My talent got me through yeah. from the, as a young man, and I, I achieved some some pretty interesting accomplishments. It changed uh, the course of rock and roll. <clears throat> I I got to travel a little bit. All I, right, I whatever. Got to be in a band. Do. Let me let me let me let me raise you to the height that you deserve, <laughs> and you can minimize it with your humility. That's fine, Wayne. You 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 can frame it how you'd like. I'm going to keep you up on the pedestal. Okay. You, can, you know, you well, want to be humble? That's fine. Well, Wayne. let me tell you this. Yeah, talent ain't enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all that was worth nothing. Yeah. When the shit hit the fan, and all of a sudden I don't have a band anymore, and I, it doesn't matter that I can play the guitar and I can dance and yeah. sing and write a song. Right. And I'm fucked. Yeah. And I discovered the wonderful pain-killing properties of Jack Daniels and heroin. Yeah. Oh, so you did the heroin thing. Well. <laughs> why why mess it? around? I mean, <laughs> if you're going to go, go. It's way less toxic than alcohol. Uh-huh. And, and not as dangerous as cocaine in some ways. That's correct. Yeah. So you got strung out. Yes. In 71. Uh, yes. For how long? For, uh, well, all the way till uh, I went to the penitentiary in 75. It's a long run, dude. And what were you doing during that time? If you weren't engaging your talent, you were just chasing the fucking high or what? Well, I think I I, I think I fell in love with that movie, The Godfather. Yeah, how can you not? And I just wanted to like go to business meetings and nice restaurants and drive a nice car and carry a pistol. Uh-huh. So I thought I was a gangster. Okay. And I, I didn't have any trouble finding other people who thought they were gangsters, too, except they all were gangsters, and I wasn't. So you're hanging around with real mobsters. Real bad guys. And you're, what, you're doing what? What did you go to the camp for? What are you well, doing? What's the business of the mobsters? You know, I was doing petty crime. I was doing home invasion, oh, really? burglaries, yeah. and fencing, stolen goods, and dealing drugs. This is after the three records. Yeah. And and this is what this is where heroin took you. 
in in a way, yeah, because it you know it puts you in a desperate situation because you can't afford it. Yeah, so you you're can, broke. Yeah, so you're broke all the time. You need money, and someone says, "Hey, man, I know how you can. We can get paid doing this over here." Yeah. Okay. What what's what's involved in that? All right. Can yeah. I do that? Yeah. Yeah, I can do that. So you're 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 broke. You're strung out. You're doing what's necessary to yeah. feed the monkey. Yep. Yeah. And that goes on for four fucking years. Yeah. And you're hanging out with real tough guys. Yeah. That's the scary thing about drugs because I always knew that when I used there was some line I, tro- I, you know, I I thought I wouldn't cross, which is like, well, if I start to lose my mind, you know, I'll stop. Like as if you're going to know that. <laughs> that you're gonna like sit there and go like i think it's happening yeah you know the the clarity of thought right but but also what i did realize and and i think i i I sort of came up with it by myself is that when you use drugs the 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 the, you the the amount of ways you can die grows exponentially absolutely whether it's a a a deal a bad dose you know the people you're hanging around with getting caught in the middle some bullshit Yep. yep so so there you are with with real you know you're you're a good kid from detroit that went bad and you're hanging around with hard guys i mean did you know that yeah but i thought i could handle it you know and when what was the what was the moment that you knew you couldn't well in the mc5 we used to go down into Ohio to tour. You know, uh-huh. we go and play Cleveland mm-hmm. and Cincinnati. And we go down I-75. Yeah. And I-75 goes past Milan Federal Prison. And we'd be smoking joints and yeah. going down to the gig. And, and one day I looked over at the prison as we were passing it. And I said, you know, I may do some stupid shit in my life, but I'd never do anything so stupid as to end up in that motherfucker. Yeah. And then one day I was inside Milan Prison in the kitchen working, looking out at I-75 and said, I've been waiting my whole life to fuck up this bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here yeah. it is. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> my worst fears <laughs> realized. And you just saw the image of your of the MC5 yeah. driving, <laughs> driving by, by. smoking <laughs> joints. <laughs> But what'd you go in for? What what'd you get busted for? It that was my federal case was uh a conspiracy to traffic in a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. And so did I, you take a rap or did it, was it really your deal? It, it was my, I mean, I was in the middle, I was a middleman in yeah. between, uh, well, as it turned out, I was a middleman between some professional drug dealers and federal agents. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong customer. Yes. <laughs> I, I sold them a pound and a half of cocaine over some months. Oh, so big time. And, you know, just to, to bring us into perspective for today, when I went, this was in 1975, and I went to court, and the, the judge, I was indicted on 16 counts of 15 years each. Yeah. Uh, the judge could have given me 15 years times 16. Mm-hmm. That was the range of his options, or nothing. He gave me a four year federal prison term, followed by a three year special parole term after. Um, because why? It was your first offense? You'd make, it wasn't you know. my first offense, but... Oh, you've been busted before? Yeah. But, you know, he, he said, what am I going to do with you? Jeez, you're... Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Trouble, I, I, man. Yeah, yeah. I, there, you know, I was, I was out of work, Your Honor. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. These guys had all these $100 bills. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, all these guys from the music business had written these letters of recommendation. I went to a priest and got a letter. I said, I'll wash police cars. I'll work with orphans. Yeah, yeah. What he said, is he not said, jail. You'll be in federal prison at six o'clock tonight. 
He gave me four years. Today, when the with mandatory minimums and these uh, these uh, medieval sentences, yeah, uh, my same offense carries a life sentence. Jesus. So for the same offense, I could be down all day. But when when you went in for this, like the other raps were what? Just you know, county jail for what? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Burglaries and uh, and you buy and you, you didn't have to do hard time. So now right. you're you're up against it. I mean, at that moment, you you were still strung out. Well, I cleaned up because I knew I was going going to know. court, right? Yeah. But but I mean, what you know, you're you didn't ever think you'd get there. So now you're looking at hard time. I mean, you know, were you terrified? Of course, it's a traumatic experience. Going to prison changes you. And you never get unchanged from that. In what way? I think uh, I ended up uh, less naive, um, more cynical. Um, and I think probably more cunning, mm -hmm. uh, less trusting. Mm -hmm. um, certainly... Uh, I was a complete total failure as a drug dealer. As a now, I know how to do it. They okay. taught me in there how, oh, yeah. to, how to really deal drugs <laughs> successfully. <laughs> did the guys, were your suppliers, go down too? No. Did they? Did they ask you to write them out? Of course. You didn't write. No. I said, well, guys, I'm a, I'm a public person. I'm a musician. I want people to know who I am. I said, well, you know, work with us. Yeah. But I'll tell you, the, this is the kind of deals they offer you. Yeah. They say, go out, get us 10,000 pills, get us 200 pounds of marijuana, 10 ounces of cocaine, and we'll go to the judge on your behalf. I said, what will you, what will you get me? And they said, well, well, we'll make sure that you don't get more than three years. I said, what kind of deal is that? I'm going to risk my life, ruin my future, and, and I'm still going to do three years? Yeah, fuck, fuck that. Fuck you. <laughs> I only ended up getting four years anyway. Lucky deal. Lucky <laughs> deal. So there was the threat of your life if you were to rat somebody out in that situation. Yeah. My, my crime partner was actually kidnapped by our suppliers, and it was only that he was pretty persuasive that he convinced them that we wouldn't turn over on them wow so that you know see that's that whole thing you ever read chet baker's or not chet baker art pepper's book sure it's like it's hilarious because like basically all he says about sax playing is like that was a natural and then it's 400 pages of prison and drugs <laughs> yeah. and at the end of the book <laughs> at the end of the book he says the only thing you learn in life don't rat yeah. and fuck chet baker <laughs> that, that book was a killer oh. and then He's laying on the gurney and he says, honey, I'm hungry. Would you get me a candy bar? She goes, leaves the room and he gets out his bag yeah. and <laughs> finishes dope. off his bag of dope while she's in the other room, in the emergency room. Oh, shit. Dope fiends. Yeah, uh, man. Whew. How'd you kick it? Well, uh, of course, I you know, came out of prison. I learned a few things in there. It was a programming institution and I was in at the end of the era of rehabilitation. So I I got to take some classes, group therapy, all that kind of wait, stuff. Did you wait, did you get your ass kicked? I mean, was there like did you find how did you find your way in prison? Were you diplomatic? How does one exist in there? What was your approach? Yeah, well, um, my approach was you know keep my head down. Yeah. Don't deal drugs. Don't get involved with homosexuals. Yeah. Don't get involved with gambling. Yeah. And just do my bit. You know, yeah. take my time and find my click. And uh, but I played music. 
Did you find other musicians in there? Well, that became the the deal. What do you <laughs> Because there's always musicians in prison. Yeah. And we had some pretty good ones and and uh and so I put a we had a band together and I my day job was the graphic artist on the prison newspaper. Uh-huh. And uh and then uh, about halfway through my bit um Red Rodney was transferred to Lexington. Yeah. Red Rodney is a trumpeter who replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. Wow. And he's a career jazz musician, dope fiend, and uh-huh. had been to Lexington in the 40s, uh-huh. the 50s, and the 60s. That's where you ended up? Yep. After the one that you drove by in Ohio. Right. You were the, there the, for a... I was there for a few weeks, oh, and then okay. they transferred me down to Lexington. Okay. So Red Rodney shows up. And he became my musical father. And... Uh, and uh, schooled me a Berkeley School of Music course in writing and arranging. Really taught me how to read music. And, really, yeah, he was he meant everything to me. Uh, and you know, he was he was my idol. I mean, he was the kind of guy I always wanted to grow up and be a dope fiend jazz musician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and here he was, and and I he ended up at the same place. Yeah, he said, Wayne. Yeah, he said, you know, I like doing business with established institutions. <laughs> He was like the mayor of Lexington. Uh-huh. You know, he knew everybody. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you were playing jazz in prison? Yeah. yeah. Was that, but that was, was. Best I could. I mean, I can't play on the level that Red Rodney can. Right. Play. But was that your real introduction into sort of understanding and, and moving through jazz? Yes. Like, because like this record that you made, this new record, Lexington, is a real jazz record and it's good and it's solid. Uh, but like you couldn't have done that in 69 or 71, no matter how much you liked that music, could you? I don't think so, because I didn't have the the comprehension, mm-hmm. you know, the theory. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so you do four total, three parole. And what, do you, what are you doing for, for uh, work after that? Did you get right back into the music? Yeah, I, I, uh, I paroled back to Detroit, and I, uh, some guys heard that I was back and asked me to join their band as a special guest. Who? Um... They were called Punch, uh-huh. and they had a job in a bar, mm-hmm. and if I came in and and did like 15 minutes twice a night with mm-hmm. their band as their special guest, they gave me money. <laughs> and they were a punk band? Sort of. Uh-huh. Not, not punk in the truest sense. So how does, wait, wait, to jump back quickly, you know, what was the relationship with Iggy? Iggy uh, was a drummer before he yeah. invented Iggy. yeah. Jim Osterberg yeah. was a, a, and a great drummer. Really? Yeah. Because the way he puts it, he said, uh, I said, why'd you start singing? He said, I got tired of looking at the singer's ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we tried to hire him for the MC5. To drum? Yes. And he was what, 16, 17? Yeah, I think we were all about that age. Yeah. And Because uh, you knew him. Ann Arbor was close enough to where, yeah. We, yeah, we we heard about him. And we, so we went up to see him and talked to him about him. And he wasn't interested in quitting the band he was in and joining our band. The band he was in had gigs. We, yeah. didn't, we didn't even have gigs yet. So. Right. Um, and so, you know, we became friends. And then uh, when he went off uh, on his mystery sabbatical and came back as Iggy Pop, um, we all lived in the same area in Ann Arbor. The MC5 had to leave Detroit because the Detroit Police Department was just up our ass too deep yeah <laughs> and uh, and plus our neighborhood our uh, our gear had been robbed our women were getting raped and the the neighborhood was getting 
worse than it was. And uh, so we moved up to Ann Arbor and, and we were close to the Stooges. So we all listened to the same music. We all yeah. listened to the Coltrane. Yeah. We listened to Ascension all night on acid. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then we'd get together and smoke hash and jam for hours and hours and hours. So And, and you, so you had a relationship from that point on. Yeah. And, and you know, him and I were always kind of like, the two sea captains, you know, the band yeah. leaders, and right. and we still are. Yeah, and did could you like when you listen to that first uh, Stooges album? Can you hear the the influence of the MC Five? <laughs> I, I can hear, yeah, that the, there's a time and a place there. Yeah, yeah exactly, absolutely. Yeah. And that must be the nice. bells. Uh, yeah, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. that's all Pharaoh uh, Sanders. Oh yeah, yeah, and Albert Eiler stuff. Yeah. So it's so weird that you guys are all so conscious of integrating really avant garde jazz into into this music. I, I don't know if how many people hear that, but you were all very aware of it. Yeah, and yeah. Co- and consciously trying to to play it, you know, playing free is harder than playing in structure, right? Because you know, freedom isn't free. <laughs> <laughs> you got to know structure first. <laughs> yes, freedom is like a coin. On one side says you're free, on the other side says you're responsible. Yeah, you know. So when you're playing free, you have to use everything you know about music without any. Depending on any structure, you've got to play what the other play people are playing right now, respond to what they're doing appropriately, musically, you mm-hmm. know, using all your musical skills. Yeah. Just without a beat and a key. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. With, with no with no net. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So you so you go back to Detroit, you're on parole and you're sober? No. 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 No, no. I I, I came out of prison still a sick man mm-hmm. and and didn't really know enough about what the hell was wrong with me you know mm-hmm. what's wrong with that me? wasn't available in prison at that time i don't think the state of the art was there yet yeah. we we you know we talked a lot about behavior modification and rational behavior and mm-hmm. and positive mental attitude mm-hmm. but none of that really gets to the core of, right. of what is addiction right. you know, how how does this thing rob my life from me without my permission right and how long before you got that wisdom long time no. i'm not sure i have it now yeah 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 but you're sober <laughs> today yeah yeah but it's only lunchtime that's right <laughs> but for how long though for how long uh well 15 years yeah oh. that did take you a while huh i didn't get sober till i was 50 yeah but we were 66 you, this year. Were you strung out though, or just fucking you well, know, I, you chipping know, and what? No, I, I moved to New York. Uh, I, I, you know, dope was in the 80s. New York City was like Disneyland for adults. Cheap, dude. Cheap. Ten dollar bags. Ten dollar bags of snortable dope. And like it was so fucking clean. Sometimes I wouldn't even have to leave my building. I'd run into somebody in the hallway. You know, hey man, what's good today? Oh, well, I got a couple. You want yeah. two? Yeah, yeah, give me two. You know, yeah. and all those weird names. Well, addiction is such a complex uh, mental condition. Uh, you know, we can call it a disorder. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I. I don't. That might be uh, pejorative. You mm-hmm. know, it's just there's something in our human makeup that. We uh, we alter our consciousness. We change how we feel because we can, mm-hmm. and we always could, mm-hmm. and we always will. Yeah, 
the trouble is, uh, you know, really, it it is. It's not the problem. It's the solution. The problem is I don't feel good. Right. Right. And right. That's, the trouble is it, it. It comes with these side effects. <laughs> yeah, like ruining your life. Yeah. <laughs> it's the side effect of homelessness. Yeah. Homelessness. <laughs> jail. Yeah. Jail. Hep C. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh Jesus. Yeah. But so what? What was the moment? I mean, what was the bottom? I mean, you already hit the bottom. Well, I hit it a few times. I mean, yeah. I'm an old hand at this stuff, and yeah. and to come out of prison and 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 get in a band with Johnny thunders and and pick up again and they moved to new york what was the band with johnny it was called gang war uh-huh and uh i gotta get that record it, it was a disaster it was <laughs> and <laughs> well he was a disaster yes he was and, and the whole project was doomed from the from conception a great tone though dude yeah johnny yeah, thunders, yeah. great yeah, yeah. tone man yeah uh so I joined a methadone program in uh, Manhattan, mm-hmm. and I was in that program for six years, and uh, uh, finally detoxed from methadone and uh, replaced my methadone with alcohol, mm-hmm. and then replaced the alcohol with cocaine, then um, shifted over from the cocaine to pharmaceutical narcotics. Mm-hmm. And by the time I landed in uh, Los Angeles in 94, uh, I, I was living with a woman who, uh, I, I taught her how to work croakers. Mm-hmm. Oh, the doctors. Yes. Yeah, they don't even call them that anymore. Yeah. Now they're just called pain management clinics. Yeah. <laughs> so do, ultimately. Well, yeah, why don't you lay some wisdom on, uh, on some of our aspiring junkies? How do you work a croaker? Well, you go in with, uh, this cough or this back pain yeah. or this yeah. migraine headache. Uh-huh. And uh, and you go for the Academy Award. Yeah. And he writes you a prescription for oxys or Dilaudid or whatever. Narcotics. Percodan. So all we care about is is it a narcotic? <laughs> the flavor doesn't matter. It's the narcotic part. Good, we... clean, professionally made drugs. That's right. USD. <laughs> yes. We don't want any of that street crap. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it gives that pharmaceutical yeah, grade. I don't want to have to go down to the hood and <laughs> yeah. stand around with a bunch of hoodlums. Yeah. You know, we're old people. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go to a nice doctor's office yeah, yeah, yeah. and go to the pharmacy and uh-huh. get my medication. So you ran that racket for a while. Ran that racket for a while, and then and then finally, you know, um, uh, I met this fellow Bob Timmons, and he invited me to this support group. Mm-hmm. And um, I walked in, and you know, it was a bunch of men, uh, professional men, and I knew some of them going back to Detroit. Really? Some of my home musicians. Musicians, mm-hmm. yes. And I hung out in the group for a while and I just, I was still using and drinking and I was lying mm-hmm. and I was telling everyone I was sober. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then finally I couldn't take it anymore and I told them that I was going to be the only living person to retire. <laughs> that from that group? From the group, yeah. yes. And, uh, and I went back and, uh, Little by little, I started to dabble again, and of course, everything. Um, you got to be tired at that point. Well, yeah, and then I was on a plane coming back from a European tour, and I figured, well, I can get loaded because I'm in the air now. You yeah, know? And it's I, not, we're not even on Earth. And uh, <laughs> I got a couple boxes of codeine at the airport in London, and yeah. uh, drank seriously, came to. With a young female black flight attendant standing over me, advising me that she was having me arrested when we landed in the United States. 
Uh-huh. And she had warned me about the cursing and the yelling. And that you don't remember. Disrupt the, dev, the whole. And I look around and everybody's moved away. There's a yeah. security ring yeah. of empty seats around it's me. A, a little MC5 concert. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, in that moment, I saw who I really was, which is a drunken, stoned out rock and roll asshole. Yeah. Just the kind of guys that I will cross the street to avoid. Yeah. I hate these guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. we all know hundreds of yeah, them. Yeah. And that's who I am, a complete fool. Yeah. And um, then I then it hit me, this is what they were talking about, about that bottom thing and that, yeah. that moment of incomprehensible demoralization. I was embarrassed. Yeah. I, I, you know, I felt, oh, man, I'm going to land, you know— Everyone in the music business is going to know Wayne's a big fraud, you know. Oh, yeah, the chump got a... Yeah, fuck him, you know. Yeah. This entire house of cards that I'd built up with the record company and the, the press image. and everything. Yeah, it, it was all going to collapse. Yeah. And I got back and I went back to uh, my friend and uh, I asked him if he could help me and he told me that uh, they didn't shoot the wounded. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, you know, I, I, I tried to figure out what was wrong with me and I did what people suggested I do. Yeah. And, uh, I got a chance to see what living a life without drugs and alcohol might produce. Uh-huh. And I like it. Yeah. It's pretty fun. We well, seem Most of good. the time. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. Life is hard, but I mean, you seem pretty good. Yeah. You seem clear, you seem grounded. You seem humble. You seem uh, happy to be alive. Well, I'll I'll tell you the the greatest thing yeah. uh, for me is uh, I I'm a father. When did that happen? In August. <laughs> I have I have a seven month old son uh-huh. that is the love of my life, and uh, you know, listen. I don't I don't think kids get people sober. Right. I mean, look at poor dearly departed yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Beautiful family. Unbelievable career. One of our greatest living actors wasn't enough. Yeah, destroyed himself. Yeah, we—that's part of the human condition. Yeah, we we can't we can't undo that. Yeah, um, but I'm telling you, I, I sure dig my kid. You know, and <laughs> you know, my life has turned out to be more fun than I could have ever imagined. This kid is the coolest thing I ever did. How old are you? I'm—I'll be 66 this month. That's amazing. <laughs> you know Jerry, right? Jerry Stahl? Yes. He's a guy kid, too. I love him, yeah. You guys got to start hanging out. He needs somebody to hang out with with a kid. I'll give him a call, (laughs) yes. We can compare diaper changing. Yeah, he just just had one, man. Really? Mm -hmm. How fantastic. (laughs) I love it. We we have uh, an MC5 movie. Uh Uh-huh. property that we and uh, Jerry was uh, Jerry was going to write it for us. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what's going on with that? Well, we're going to I think we're going to revive it. We 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 made a round of uh, pitches with it, but who is we? Who's left? Well, we is me and my wife. Okay. But I mean, how many of the guys are left? Um only one. Who? The drummer. Which one? What's his, his name's name? Dennis Thompson. He's still around? Yeah. You every, guys, you guys tight or what? No. Okay. We're not tight. You know, we we went our separate ways after the band broke up and and he still lives in Michigan. We played together when I put together a, a new version of the MC5 a few years ago. We did. Who was in that? Was that the one with Gilby? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And how'd that go, all right? Oh, it was a ball. Yeah. It was unbelievable. We're way bigger now than we were then. <laughs> we could, we played, you know, Glastonbury and uh-huh. Reading and went oh, to Japan nice. and Australia. Who sang? 
a different guest artist, Mark Arm from Mudhoney. Oh, did he? And oh, yeah. Handsome great. Dick Manitoba. Wow. Uh, from The Dictator? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we had uh, uh, Lisa Coca-Cola from The Bell Rays. Uh-huh. She she tears it up. She's she's wicked. She she channels Rob Tyner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, do you now, Rob passed in the 90, what, in the 90s? Yeah, in uh, 93. 91. Did you remain friends with him? Nope. Oh, really? So nobody really... No, the band ended, you know, like... uh, I mean, this is not new. Bands almost always end badly. (laughs) Right. But you and and Fred Smith lived... You know, he lived a while. I mean, you know, were were you the guy that... Like, you know, like it seems like Fred, he married married Patty Smith and, you know, he was living life. But were you the guy that they didn't want to talk to anymore? Were you, like, a persona non grata? or, Or how did that go? Um... I th- I think everyone was so traumatized by being in the MC5 that we all had a kind of PTSD. Right. And and the loss was so painful yeah. that uh everyone covered it up and denied it mm-hmm. as best they could. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, it, uh, drinking, you know, was yeah. was uh was and is a efficient painkiller sure and uh i think uh uh my colleagues succumbed to yeah the yeah ravages of uh alcohol abuse and and uh drug abuse yeah i don't know why i'm not six feet under i did more than all of them yeah i don't know i think going to prison saved me actually yeah I would... because i got two years of clean living in there yeah, yeah. two and a half years where I only I probably got drunk twice and got high three times. And you were working. <laughs> I was working out. I was on the yard. I yeah. ran every. I ran five miles every day. I went in. I was Big Wayne. I went in at two hundred thirty-five pounds. Holy shit! I came out at one hundred sixty-five. Yeah, I was hard. Yeah, I went hit the street hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you got a new baby. You got the MC five property. But now, why don't we why don't we talk about the 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 backdrop of of the new record because there is some. There, there was. Uh, this was a, an interesting process for you, correct? Yes. What, what was the birth of Lexington, which is where you were in prison? Yeah, uh, FCI, Federal Correctional Institution at Lexington. I got hired. I got interviewed for a documentary about Lexington. Mm-hmm. Filmmakers, uh, ABC News guy, uh, independent filmmakers. Uh, heard about the 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 institution. It was the United States Public Health Service Narcotics Farm. Mm-hmm. It was built in the 30s in the Progressive Era when America could fix its problems. We're mm-hmm. going to put our best people on this. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they built these institutions, one at Lexington, one at Fort Worth, uh, and here at Terminal Island, three actually. And they were designed to get to the core of what is drug addiction as a social problem and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, all the jazz musicians went there. All the junkies in the world went there because the federal prison wardens didn't want addicts in their prisons ruining their good prisoners. Right. <laughs> Bad influence. <laughs> you can't trust them. <laughs> These junkies, they'll tell you one thing and then they'll go do something else. You right. know? Yeah. We have the prison code, you yeah, know, yeah. and everyone adheres to the code except for these damn junkies. They won't work within the system yeah. even in here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, in the course of the interview about my time there, I said, who's doing the music on this movie? And they said, we hadn't thought of that yet. And I said, I'll do the music. So I wanted it to be a jazz score. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got 
great players together. I called my old friend Charles Moore. I said, let's, let's write this music. This is what I want to do. And working on it and watching the film, you know, when you're scoring, you, you, you watch the movie 10 million times. Yeah. And it just started dredging up my penitentiary experiences. Really? Uh-huh. And it just caused me to, to go inward uh-huh. and face it. You know, I mean, I always could talk about it pretty easily, but I would rather not, uh-huh. you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, for 30 years, I've been watching as people just like me have gone to prison. First thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and today millions 2.3 million of our fellows in prison in America, 10 million under direct state control, parole, probation. And I started to wonder, what's going on here? How come nobody's saying this is fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> nobody's saying anything about this. This is just, this is out of fucking control. We're locking people up at a pace that has never been seen in the history of the world. And um, I got angry. And matter and matter, and so I'm doing this score, and uh, and uh, I decided I needed to do something. What could I do? I'm a musician. I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I don't know. Could I play music in a prison? Would that help at all? And some friends of mine in New York, I said, set it up if you can, and they set up a concert for me at Sing Sing. So I called a bunch of musicians I knew and said, you want to come with me and play in a prison? They all said, great. One of them was Billy Bragg. Billy had his guitar. We were backstage getting ready to go on. It said jail guitar doors on his guitar. I said, what's up with that, jail guitar doors? He said, oh, it's Old Clash B-Side. You ever heard it? I said, heard it, Bill. They wrote the song about me. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? I said, what are the lyrics? Right. Let me tell you about wine and his deals of cocaine. Oh, bloody fucking <laughs> hell, it is about you. <laughs> so he tried to tell me he wanted to do something to celebrate Joe Strummer's life's work. Uh-huh. The Clash inspired Billy to combine his activism and his love of music. Mm-hmm. A guy had written him from a prison in England saying he was trying to use music as a tool for rehabilitation. They had no guitars. Could Billy find them some guitars? He said, great. This will be my tribute to Joe. I'll call it that song, Jail Guitar Doors, and we'll raise money with my rock star friends and we'll buy guitars for prisons. By the time we'd finished the concert at Sing Sing, I said, you know, this is a brilliant fucking idea. And it's good that you're doing that in England and for Joe and all that. But I'm an American. I live here. I'm an ex-offender. I'm a musician. I want to do this in this country. And he said, good, because I was just about to task you with it. <laughs> he said, you're the only guy that can do this. Yeah. Because you know how the system works. Yeah. So uh, we started. We, my wife, Margaret Kramer, Billy Bragg, and I founded Jail Guitar Doors USA. Today, we're, our guitars are in over 50 American prisons. We have a waiting list of 60 more. Um, we work on a political level to advocate for prison reform and sentencing reform. I go to Washington every few months and hold those fuckers' feet to the fire. Yeah. With a, <laughs> what, do you take a lawyer or you just get up in front I just of go, I just go, you can have meetings, you know, constituent meetings, and you meet with them or you meet with staff, and you say, hey, what are you guys doing? 
So I had a good meeting the last time with uh, Senator Leahy's staff, and they're really working to undo some of these uh, mandatory minimums. Uh, they're, they're just – they're indefensible. They're unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to, to change bad laws. It's very easy to pass them yeah. in the heat of the moment. Sure. But uh, – and then we work on the on the personal level of uh, getting guitars in the hands of prisoners and and tasking them with using, meeting the challenge of we're going to give you a guitar. You have to use this as a tool to figure out how to express yourself in a non-confrontational way. We have pro- songwriting workshop programs in the Cook County Jail in Illinois, in Chicago, in the Travis uh, County uh, Correctional Complex in uh, Austin, Texas. At Sing Sing, we have one, and uh, we're starting one now in the L.A. County Jail, the Twin Towers downtown. Wow! And do you do you work with a guitar company? Um, I, I I work with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone that wants to give me guitars, I'll take the guitars. Uh, mostly with Fender. Fender um, uh, gives us sells us the guitars at a, a no profit basis, mm-hmm. so they're very fair with us and. Uh, they're they're a little people are a little leery of uh, lining up if you're advocate for prisoners mm-hmm. you know like if if you say i want to have uh i want to cure cancer in children yeah. the money comes flying out of people's wallets yeah prisoners yeah eh. not so much yeah. they already took my money <laughs> <laughs> plus there's a whole aspect of the psyche of americans that want wants to see people suffer mm-hmm. they want to see retribution they want to see people hurt it, it's it's profound and it's real, and how, you know changing that. I I don't know how that's done. I mean, I think that's done over millennia. Uh, you know, our whole idea of how do you hold someone accountable for breaking the social contract? Uh, you know, personally, the trouble with prisons is prisons. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's ways to hold people accountable in their own communities without shipping them off to some to fucking Pelican Bay or, you know, right. down to Chino or, you know, 800 miles away from their family. You know, family connections are the most important things for offenders. You know, those are the things we need to nurture, not not and there's worse. And there's always the, the sort of indication that, that prisons actually harden, uh, cr- you know, criminal resolve. Well, th- this, this is our position. Uh, my position is if we don't do something to help people that are in prison— we do it at our own peril, because if we don't help them change for the better, they will most certainly change for the worse. Mm. Well, it's amazing work, man, and uh, it's uh, it, it it in that all. So so like in the new record Lexington, this became a project of the heart because of what it brought up for you uh, in 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 tr- doing the soundtrack uh, of the documentary, the prison you were involved in, and during the the recording of this, you met you met Billy. Or, be, yeah, or before? Uh, um, no, after. I'd already recorded it. It just, all the parts started, I, I found it followed. as a way to connect the dots, right, you know, and right. to be able to talk about hyper-incarceration, to be able to bring in my love of free jazz and how important I think it is to move music forward and uh-huh. move the art forward, um, to talk about the generations of jazz musicians that went through this facility, and to connect up this whole, you know, national disgrace of... of uh, of mass incarceration and prisons for profit. And, you know, it, it's something that needs to be in our national discourse and is just now trickling in little by little. It's funny, the political right is lining up now. Yeah. 
of course, for slightly different yeah, reasons. Yeah, it's costing too much money. Yeah, it's it, the libertarians see it as you know big government, uh-huh. government overreach. You uh-huh. know, they're coming into your bedroom. They want to. And also, it's, it's uh, you know these private jails. I mean, they're, they're yeah. contracted out. It's a big business. It's, t- uh, the, it's a money drainer. Yeah, it, it's really offensive. Well, I'm glad you're doing the work because you're doing the big work, and and it was a, a fucking honor talking to you. And uh, I'm glad you're doing well. Well, thank you so much. It's been a thrill to be with you. I'm a huge fan, and uh, we I, I watch your show uh, uh, religiously. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, <laughs> You're Wayne. doing good work, too. You, too. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. Take care. <laughs>